Hello, my name's David Runciman, and this is Talking Politics. Today, we're talking with the historian, broadcaster, and host of history hit, Dan Snow, about whether the past really can tell us something about what we're going through, and if so, which bits of the past should we be looking at? Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books, Europe's leading magazine of culture and ideas. Improve the quality of your solitude with a subscription to the LRB. They'll send you exceptional analysis of the politics, economics, sociology and science behind the crisis and reportage from around the world, but also gloriously unrelated, richly immersive distraction from the world's best authors and critics writing about history and philosophy, art and technology, fiction and poetry. Just go to lrb.me slash talk and get your first 12 issues for just £12. That's lrb.me slash talk. We've also got Helen Thompson with us. Hi, Helen. Hi, David. Hi, Dan. Hi, Helen. So, Dan, on History Hit, obviously you haven't just been talking about the pandemic, you do a lot and you cover a lot, but you have done a series of episodes with historians of disease. You've talked to medieval historians about the plague, the Black Death. Uh, You've looked at the Spanish flu, 1918. You've looked at various comparisons. We did one on cholera. I think you, did you do one on cholera? Yes, the dysentery of the 19th century. Yeah, Yeah, so you've, you've got the full house. Now that we're a fair way into our own pandemic, do you feel that any of these are particularly salient? I mean, do, do you now sense that the thing that we should be comparing ourselves to is, or do you increasingly feel that our one is ours and it's different? Well, the problem that you and Helen will have had from your senior common room mates when you're all drinking your port is that historians are quite slippery because they, they have all these clever ideas about the past. But then the minute you try and ask them, what does that tell us about the present? How, what can we learn? What does that mean? Where's the future going? They say, well, of course... It's very difficult to, you know, the history never exactly repeats itself. It rhymes, it echoes. But there are, I think there are around this pandemic, very useful reflections to be made about history. Apart from anything, look, apart from anything else, lockdown and quarantine, coughing, etiquette, distancing, shutting down cities. These are literally things we have borrowed from the past. We, we have borrowed those from previous pandemic outbreaks, whether it's probably initially the kind of Russian influenza of the 1890s. Lots of people looked at that and then tried to apply those lessons to the great influence and so-called Spanish influenza of 1918-19. So there are things that, well, lots of things that we are literally doing that we have borrowed from the past. I think the past is important. I do think at the moment, this looks to be partly because of the action we all took. It is not a gigantic mortality event or even a morbidity event. Most of us aren't sick and most of us haven't died. That is, of course, different to previous horrific pandemics. And it may be that, you know, I can feel Helen there, sort of straining at the leash to get sort of Adam Tooze back on and talk about the, the economic effects. It, f- it feels to me, first and foremost, this is now an economic crisis, a, a sort of a, a depression event. And it may be that those are the more useful historical parallels. But I think before we kind of dismiss all the previous pandemics, it is worth cleaning what we can from. There are quite a few interesting lessons. I mean, I say that it's not a mass mortality, but let's just remind ourselves, the Black Death, something like 50% of the population of Europe died in the Black Death. And there was... There's a real dislocation following that. Fields weren't sown. There was massive migration. 
family and communities kind of broke down. There was from place to place a bit of, of anarchy. And I also think the one that no one ever talks about, which is really important, is the wave of pandemics that followed the arrival of Europeans into the Americas. Something like they now think 90% of indigenous Americans died in the two centuries following Christopher Columbus's arrival. And that led to the almost complete demographic, cultural, political obliteration of, of those indigenous societies. So that's where the bar is at one end. We're clearly not there, even so there are lessons. I should say, of course, the story is not over yet. <laughs> and as the Russian influenza, Spanish influenza, all had second spikes that were worse in terms of sickness and death. I do think there's something about our modern society with its centralised network of food distribution, energy distribution, that means that we are still quite vulnerable to utilities collapsing, etc. If a, a number of us still get sick and choose to stay at home during a, any kind of second peak. So we could be back into territory around a sort of societal breakdown then. But for the moment, it doesn't look like we are going to be. And we're, it looks like it's, it's uh, worth talking about the things that we've learned from previous pandemics where society survived, if albeit in altered form, and whether that's the acceleration of existing trends within retail, religious observance, the expansion of government is a really important one, the government expanding into people's homes, into people's lives, telling us to wash our hands. For example, it was you know, 300, 400 years ago, it would have been an absurd expression of government overreach. And also popular calls for some fairly radical reform that can often follow these outbreaks. So yeah, I think there's lots of things to talk about. Helen, do you have a feeling now that there's one point of comparison in particular that stands out for you? I agree with Dan. We've clearly borrowed a lot from the past. And we're also, from the beginning, I think, the shadow of the 1918-1919 flu hangs over this just because of the the pattern from the first outbreak through to the second wave in the autumn and then the third wave in the spring of 1919. And I think we're going to be haunted by that one until we know that we're not repeating it. Yeah, I mean, I think that it's all pretty hard for some of the reasons that Dan has said in in making these comparisons. I think in the big sweep of things, what we have experiencing puts us very much back, if you like, into history. We lived in a world, in the West anyway, where it was taken for granted in some sense that, taken for granted, I should say, by many people, that these kinds of pandemics weren't going to be part of the way in which we experienced human life and we've been brutally taught that that isn't so and that we are not as separate in some respects anyway from past human experience as many people would like to believe. Having said that I think that you know, there clearly is some separation from the past that occurred a long time ago at least in our sense of time when human beings became much better scientifically at dealing with disease than they were, say, at the time of the Black Death. Now, that didn't mean that disease of this kind was eliminated from the world, quite the contrary, but it meant in some sense that the balance moved more in favour of human beings and, and away from the disease than it had been previously. So in some sense, I think that you know our better comparisons would have been the ones that somehow we forgot about, 1957 and 1968. I must admit, at the beginning of this, I didn't know anything about those those pandemics, and yet each of them cost more than a a million lives worldwide. So in terms of direct comparisons, I think we've got to have something that's in the age of the the medical world in which we live. All that said, I think there clearly are some continuities that go back to the world where the odds were much better stacked in favour of the disease than of, of human beings. Clearly, trade patterns and movements of people matter in this. You can see that in what happened in 
disease in the you know the ancient world you can even say that maybe some of the the geographical lines of transmission like the, the silk road and the way that the disease moved this time from china via iran into or possibly at least via iran in, into europe has got some parallels i think we might also see some comparison in terms of this having a, a geopolitical fallout independently of the economic fallout that also have got comparisons in the past so you know, disease did play a significant part in hastening the demise of the, the roman empire and i think we're going to see that it has important you know, consequences for the geopolitical balance of power having said that those geopolitical fault lines were already clearly at work before we anybody had heard of covid19 so we are in a world that's recognizable with the past but we have to recognize some specific features of the present time on those ones because i also like you have been very struck by the fact that it's 57 and 68 isn't it the the two flus that as mortality events are very comparable to this one and then the the great spanish flu which donald trump still insists is 1917 but i think everyone else thinks it's 1918 1919 which was a far i mean it dwarfs what we're going through now 50 million dead and yet if you look at the way in which politicians talked about those events, the way people responded to them in real time, they were background events. This one is different because it's just all-consuming. In '57, the government didn't talk much about it. Even in 1918, during the general election in Britain in 1918, there was very little discussion of the central event that was happening, which was people were dying. And this one is, is exactly the opposite. It has drowned out everything else. And yet, in terms of scale, it's not on that scale. I mean, isn't that the big difference? Just the way this one has, it's not, we'll come on maybe in a second to the way in which it is a truly global phenomenon, but the way it has completely taken over all public and political discourse. And in 1918, 1919, 1957, 1968, that just was not the case. Yes, absolutely. And what's interesting is you to John Oxford, the virologist, he says, you know, most people in 1919, you know, they died at home. And again, this is something that is different. Is what we've heard a lot about this time is our need to protect our healthcare infrastructure from becoming overwhelmed because we realise that, particularly because lots of us are old and lots of us have underlying conditions. So unrelated to COVID, we need hospitals. We go, we, we take pills, we do things, we have operations. That's something that was unavailable to previous generations. So if you got sick, you just died at home. So these these massive spikes of mortality would be quite sharp, it might be completely horrendous, but the burden was borne by families and by communities, not by taxpayer-funded infrastructure, which we now have a huge interest in keeping intact. But I completely agree with you. I mean, famously, the Democracy for Realists, which a book you'll both be obviously familiar with and blew my mind when I read it a few years ago, probably at your suggestion. Famously, in the 1920 presidential election in the US, there's no demonstrable effect of the worst managing of a public health crisis in, in US history. That doesn't seem to have been an electoral issue, which is remarkable. So that is fundamentally different. But there are things that are the same. And Helen talked about the fault lines existing. Most historians of the Black Death now agree that what you see is an acceleration of things that were happening anyway. And I think that's what's going on now. So in the Black Death, you know, the manorial system, a system in which peasants have to perform labour under conditions that are you know, akin to serfdom, it's breaking down anyway, but it's breaking down very radically when lots of, lots of people die and therefore there isn't enough labour and therefore people's labour becomes of greater value. And you see a 
move towards labor-saving devices. And again, you don't want to be derivative, but things like the printing press, things like gunpowder, firearms, boats needing less sailors, very important changes to things like rigging in boats. Those are things that are all there, they're all happening, but it does seem like the Black Death gives them a, a great a propulsion. I, and I look now at the share price of the five big tech giants, which are currently in positive territory since the beginning of the year, despite falls elsewhere, or whether it's you know online retail, the, the loss of the high street, our viewing habits, remote learning, people listening to your podcasts, uh, surveillance capitalism, of course, we can talk about surveillance and the, the reach of government and data. All of these things we were all talking about last year, but they've all received a gigantic shot in the arm and they all seem to be bulked up versions of where they were last year. And again, the Renaissance, the Black Death didn't cause the Renaissance. There was an exciting avant-garde in the early 14th century that we now think is the base of the Renaissance, but that seems to have been accelerated by the kind of chaos and, and the inventiveness and, and the sort of anarchy that surrounded the Black Death. I think that Dan's right that the politics of healthcare is quite central to this. If we take our 50s and 60s comparison, healthcare just did not feature in politics, I think, in the same way in Western democracies as it has come to over you know, the last few decades. Now, if you take the, the United States, then probably healthcare has been the single overriding issue for more than a decade now in American politics and having a significant impact on any number of the congressional and presidential elections that have taken place for at least um, a decade. I think, though, the other reason why it's become all-consuming is is because of the way that governments decided that that healthcare issue and protecting health systems had to have complete priority over economic questions. And I think that that is the part that would look, if you put this in a longer historical perspective, quite singular. And there's a certain paradox there, because on the one hand, we also have a a politics in Western democracies that's obsessed with material prosperity. And yet that is the the issue that's been said, okay, we can deal with that later. We've just got to completely focus on the health crisis. And I think there is, again, going a bit further on on the paradox, there's a certain sort of strangeness in the way in which on the one hand, on the health side, you know, there's been this really quite serious blow to the idea um, that we are exempt from things that have been part of the human condition you know, forever, essentially. And yet on the economic side, we have this apparently endless faith that whatever we've done to the economy worldwide for the last three months can all be fixed. And that can be fixed, particularly, I think, by, by central banks. On, on the one hand, we've got a kind of like blow to the idea of progress. On the other hand, we're putting, you know, on the economic side, infinite faith in the idea that there will be a way of, of getting ourselves out of this. And the truth is that nobody's really got any idea whether there's economically a way out of this. Listening to you both speak there, I mean, it does make me think, Dan, that I mean, I'm sure you're right that people will look back and see that this epic event, which it is, I mean, just in terms of its social disruption, will have accelerated certain trends. But there's that feeling there were some things that were sort of happening anyway. I don't know, homeworking, changes in the nature of work, which have been massively accelerated. But then there were some things that seemed inexorable, as Helen was saying, an idea of how we run these economies based on travel, mass communication, but also just a kind of mass mobility, just something like the airline industry. That wasn't in progressive decline, and then this is going to kill it off. It was booming. And this has put a stop to it. So we've got these two things going on, some things that have been turbocharged, but some things that we kind of believe were just 
part of the fabric of life have just been stopped in their tracks. And it's the second category where I, I feel that we really have no idea, are these things coming back or not? I'm sure homeworking, there's going to be more of it than there was. But air travel, is there really going to be radically less of it than there was? I know that's not yeah. a historian's question, but it's what, what your comparison makes me think of. Yeah, no, I, th- I think that's a great point. I think we got dangerously close to, to winning that talking politics bingo of uh, Professor Thompson talking about quantitative easing there as well, but I'm confident we're still going to get there. Uh, the episode is is yet but young. I, one thing I want to say actually is is it is fascinating how all the another lesson from history is how all these pandemics do tell you something important about the societies in which they flourish. So, for example, the the, the, the flea-born rat, flea rats, sorry, rats-born fleas in the 14th century are in these bilges, these wooden ships. The faecal oral disease of the 19th century that come from India largely on the imperial global systems of the British and, and uh, European empires, and then find fertile territory in these cities which don't adequately dispose of their own waste. And then these are now pulmonary diseases of the 21st century. These, these are air travel diseases. These are globalized diseases, which are a droplet infection. We've now cleaned up our water. We've cleaned up our food. We dispose of our, our sewage, but we are still vulnerable in airports and, and ski resorts, and gondolas to these diseases that can jump around the world now very quickly. I mean, I think if you look at 14th century coastal trade did fall, obviously, after the Black Death. But I mean, there are some things that will bounce back. And obviously, we don't know yet. Air travel is now vulnerable on three fronts, perhaps economic downturn. Two people are now just nervous about taking planes and being in airports because of the chance of infection, perhaps unfairly. But three, there was a time bomb under air travel, which was which was climate breakdown anyway. And therefore, I think that particular example is quite a complicated one. And obviously, home working the way it interacts with air travel is itself important. I mean, as we've worked out, you know, I, I no longer have to jump on a flyby to be in Cambridge to sit down with you guys because we've worked out we can do this from home. So I think those are interlinked. But you're right, clearly there will be some things that will come out of the blue. I'm trying to think of some other examples. I was about to say China's saber rattling, but of course that hasn't come out of the blue at all. That is, it seems to be an acceleration of what's been going on over the last three years. It's a great a sense of great power rivalry, various people on both sides talking about Thucydides in slightly uninformed ways. has been going on now in, in and around China for some time. But I think there will be things that surprise us, no question. It's probably too simplistic to put it like this, but as you say, in a way we kind of get the pandemics we deserve. I mean, that the, the pandemics do seem to it's inevitable. I mean, it's in the nature of the d- disease. They expose the weak spots in our societies. And this this is a pandemic. It's not just airborne. It targets the old, and we are elderly societies. We are in the West increasingly obese societies, and it seems to also target obesity. I mean, we are unhealthy. I mean, that's a, f- a fact. In some ways, in lots of ways, we're healthier than we've ever been. But in some no, ways, we are unhealthy. And, it, and like cholera, if you're going to shove people together in cities without proper sanitation, that's kind of what you're going to get. And it goes to Helen's point, we thought we were invulnerable. Of course we weren't. What we are vulnerable is to our weaknesses as social orders. And we are elderly in some respects, not in all, but in some respects, increasingly unhealthy societies. Well, you're absolutely right. And of course, we've got the other gigantic causes, the zoonotic, you know, this wonderful word we've all been learning of describing a process which is not wonderful at all. So as we destroy animal habitats around the world, we come into contact with animals we previously wouldn't have been and not on this scale. So both the, the Ebola outbreak in central West Africa in the last few years was as a result of massive deforestation and bats moving into trees near residential properties and a young boy playing in just a, a 
bat guano infested place at the, at the foot of some trees near his house and that appeared to jump in and the same we get this from bats as well which almost certainly is the result of the kind of assault on their habitats in in china at the moment so we are going to have to get used to this you know, zoonotic uh, jumping of, of species i think that the interesting thing here is that if you look at human history human beings change their relationship to nature and nature in the end changes its relationship to them and we've not been exempt from that at all in the ways in which Dan has just you both just been um, saying. If you also look though at history and say actually it has the pestilence coming and it being brought about by the movement of peoples and goods, and there is some aspect of retreat from that afterwards, not least because in a significant number of these pandemics it leads to you know like major depopulation. We're not quite in that position because we can retreat physically from interconnection across the world into interconnection digitally. Again, if we if we move into a situation where that becomes the dominant characteristic of our internationalized way of um, living, again, we're moving, I think, into something that we that we don't really understand. But it means that the the choices that we have in responding to these events aren't quite like what previous generations have had. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Ellen, I'm going to give you a chance to talk about QE if you want to, and you may not want to, but the other points of comparison are obviously also with crises that are not disease-based crises. So we, we've talked a lot, as Dan said, to Adam Tooze about comparisons with 2008 and the financial crisis. And at the moment, it may be that when historians look back on this event, it will be its economic consequences that dominate and it will fall in a sequence that doesn't run from sort of 1918 to 1957 to 1968 to now, these series of disease-related events. It will fall in a sequence that runs through the economic crises, whether of the 30s, the 70s, 2008 and now. Do you think that future historians are more likely to see it as part of that pattern? I mean, obviously, there are two things going on at the same time. And as Dan says, we don't know. This one could yet explode in ways that we haven't understood. Yeah, I mean, I don't think that we can underestimate for a moment the the severity of the economic crisis that we have opened ourselves up to, indeed, in some sense, already putting ourselves through. If you look at what's happening in parts of the, the Middle East and Lebanon in particular, it's already, I think, reaching potentially catastrophic situation. Now, again, that this was the situation in in Lebanon was deteriorating, you know, like before this crisis happened, but it's accelerating a profoundly difficult situation that's leaving many people hungry and protesting on, on the streets because they feel like they've got nothing left to lose. I think that in terms of the way in which we move beyond the health aspects of this crisis into an attempt at economic recovery. I think that the underlying difficulty is is that it isn't possible for anybody who's responsible for decision making to have 
anything to draw on to make good judgments about what to do. You know, I'm usually, as you know, pretty sceptical about, oh, we're all in unknown territory. But in some sense, we have been in monetary unknown territory, not just since 2008, but since the early 1970s and the, the end of the dollar gold standard. So I think that when we look at the economic story that is told about this, we are going to be looking at essentially a story that began a long time ago about what happens when it becomes possible for the world's central banks to allow democratic policies, actually not just democratic policies, to live with much, much, much more debt than they had been previously, at least previously in the, in the modern world outside wartime, because obviously in wartime debt was accumulated. And we are going to find out in time, I'd say, um, what that means. And I think that the monetary story will be the one that actually is the connection between the economic crises that we're talking about. And in that sense, the 30s is a, is a kind of a red herring. It's not a red herring in the sense of it having the, the possibility, which I think is possible, that we could see a, a depression that spread internationally in part because trade breaks down, but because it's part of a different monetary story than that one that began in the 1970s. Indeed, you could actually argue that it began in the, in the 1960s with the growth of the, the euro dollar markets. Dan, the other comparisons that people make outside of diseases is war. And often the language of war is used to describe what governments are doing. And this is the most X or Y thing that's ever happened in peacetime. Do you feel that those ones have any purchase here? I mean, it's not a war. We could still yet go to war as a result of the fallout of this. But this is nothing like a war. And yet we do we do draw on that kind of terminology all the time to describe it. Well, it's a peculiarly British trait that we draw on the terminology of war almost all the time for everything, from, from <laughs> football matches to... <laughs> I, mean, I did talk to a brilliant historian the other day. She pointed out, like, it's, why are we referring back to the war when we could also refer back to one of the several pandemic influenza <laughs> outbreaks that we've had in the UK, you know, Russian influenza of 1890, which interestingly killed Queen Victoria's grandson. And so funny enough, the last three great influenza outbreaks we've had, although not the ones, in, as you pointed out, during the Cold War, if you like, but... Lord Salisbury almost died in 1889, I think it was, and Lloyd George almost died in 1918, and then Boris Johnson was sick this time around, so there might be a lesson there. But um, no, I I think war is of limited use, I think, apart from how you pay for it. I mean, I was very interested in the brilliant Dan Todman talking about the Second World War. And the only question I was interested in was a a Helen Thompson-esque question, which is, how did the British government convince people to keep lending it money at a low rate of interest, even at the height of the summer of 1940, remarkably? So German divisions on the coast of Calais, German bombs falling, German arms, barges ready to launch the invasion of Britain. And yet the government had seemingly no problem raising as much money as it wanted. So I do think there's something about raising money and interest rates which is able to do so. I also think there's one thing about war which, again, a medieval historian I discussed, is war is seen as a spur in Northwest Europe to developing the modern state, the so-called fiscal military state, is that governments, in order to survive, governments like Britain's and Dutch, they just transform themselves into a borrowing on a gigantic scale, uh, interest payments funded by modern systems of taxation overseen by parliaments, and then spending on a huge way that made them sort of globally hegemonic and build big navies and keep troops in the field. And I wonder whether looking at these pandemics, as we've all been doing over the last few months, whether we're underestimating the importance of disease in that story. So not just fiscal military states, but fiscal health states, if you like. And you look at Venice, the word quarantine actually comes from 
quarantina, I think it is, for 40 days. And they made, they made ships wait 40 days. And that required infrastructure and administration. It required legal powers to be given to health magistrates. So I think the building of the states, and if you look at the 19th century, the creation of a, a different kind of British state, the British state was being moulded by war. But it was also, I think, in terms of its ability to respond to public health crises, particularly when these when these people suffering were actually turning into voters. And so, for example, after after the cholera outbreak, you get the you know I think it was called the Epidemiological Society of London is formed. You get these kind of huge reforms across cities in Britain in the late nineteenth century. The Ministry of Health, of course, not the NHS, but the Ministry of Health is founded after the great influenza of nineteen eighteen, nineteen nineteen. I think that these could be seen like war and having a transformative effect on the state. The only other thing I'd say about war is that what war does do is show us our own genius for inventing stuff when we really have to. And that's why I've always been very, very leery of people that said at the beginning of this, oh, the vaccine will take two or three years to get out. I think the lesson from the Second World War, perhaps a positive lesson, is that if you want to get things done, you've got almost unlimited amount of money and political will to do so. You can do things very fast. In fact, that's less than the 20th century. That's how Kennedy said, well, let's go to the moon. And eight years later, nine years later, they were on the moon. It's an unimaginable, uh, very expensive process. You know, in the Second World War, you go from canvas and string biplanes to jet-engined aircraft in the space of five years. There is a lesson there. And whether that's around economic transformation to do with climate breakdown or with changing our architecture, changing our practices, changing our biomedical response, pharmaceutical response to these pandemics. The only useful thing I think we can gain from that war parallel is that we are able to do these things. Don't underestimate what we're able to do when we mobilise. And war does show us the limits of private enterprise. There is that story that's increasingly told by economic historians and economists that it's only the state that can do this on this scale. It takes a crisis to trigger it, but it's only the state that can blow those amounts of money and get away with it, partly for the reason you said, because it's incredible. States can keep borrowing. Helen, do you think, are we health fiscal states? I hadn't heard that phrase before. It's a pretty good one. Is that what we are now? In a way, yeah. I mean, I think that the underlying point that Dan's made, I would just put it slightly differently. I think it's actually the same point, and that is that the state, if you think about it in Hobbesian terms, exists to provide you know, physical security to keep people alive. That was a justification that Hobbes offered for having sovereign authority backed by coercive power. Helen, I don't want to trigger David here. We're talking about Hobbes. Are we sure? Are we going to, are we going to go here? In the modern world. I've talked that on Hobbes. In the modern world, is is that means both people's you know health, their body, individual bodies, and it means the state's external security against foreign invasion. So we should expect, I think, that the state shows itself both in the war moment for what it is as a site of political authority that's capable of commanding enormous resources, as Dan was saying, and to show itself in the health moment as well. And you'd think that the health one becomes more important, paradoxically, again, once you have ageing societies. So I think that that makes a a lot of sense to think that you can make a comparison between what the state does in the war crisis and what the state does in the health crisis. I think in the case of, of Britain, and the reason why we end up returning to the Second World War, in particular at moments of national crisis, is is because it came down in collective memory is some sense about what the British state as the British state was for and the sense of there being a collective British people that actually in relation to the British state has historically been pretty weak. 
you know, Britain develops as a, a multinational state without really very strong sense of British nationhood. You could argue that it's there in the, in the Napoleonic Wars, but I think even that's debatable. The Second World War, in some sense, is the apex of the, the British nation state, with the big caveat, of course, that it's tied up with the empire still at that moment. So if you need some story that legitimates the continued existence of the British democratic nation state, that is where you're going to go to find it. So, so Dan, to finish, something else that you've been talking about a fair bit on history here is an anniversary that we're at, which is the 80th anniversary of May 1940, which is when Churchill became prime minister. And people often make the historical comparison when prime ministers are having a difficult week or a difficult month. It's not as tough as May 1940, the toughest month maybe that any prime minister has ever faced. It's also the anniversary of Churchill's famous broadcasts, which some people still believe saved the nation that that Helen is talking about. We've got this far without talking about Dominic Cummings, and we may get to the end without doing that, or I've already broken that injunction. But it relates to this question, because after all, Boris Johnson does compare himself, in his own mind at least, to Churchill. And there have been moments in this crisis where that comparison has become discussed by others than just him. In your conversations with historians about May 1940 and about Churchill, What's your feeling in in crises like this about the centrality of leadership? And leadership with Churchill is particularly associated with that ability to voice, to speak to the nation and to speak for the nation at moments of acute crisis. Johnson has had a couple of TV broadcasts where about half the nation has been watching him. They weren't particularly Churchillian. But do do you think we are still at risk of overstating the extent to which that kind of leadership is decisive. Well, yeah, you know, it's so interesting, David. I've been having naughty, heretical thoughts about Churchill in, in May. I think we're talking on the 27th of May, and in fact, 27th of May, 1940, is possibly the crucial day in which Churchill does face, arguably, his greatest challenge within the cabinet, so from within the kind of Tory party about whether it's worth continuing this war against Hitler. So in, in a way, Churchill's leadership, if we think about it in, in several different ways, one is his fight to keep Britain in the war. That's, that's a Whitehall-Westminster fight, I think, largely, helped by his speeches that win an, a slower and, and more national conversation about Hitler representing an existential threat, unlike any other, unlike Louis XIV, unlike Napoleon, unlike possibly even the Kaiser. But I've been thinking a lot, you know, because I, I, I watched Boris's speech, I watched the Queen's speech, I watched the response to the Queen's address when she said, we'll meet again. I was thinking to myself, as somebody who's living through a crisis, does this actually matter? Is this like an outmode? Is this anachronistic? I mean, surely what matters is that we're building a, a world-class test and trace system. And that's a job for scientists and, and people that, that are bureaucrats, people whose, whose names we'll probably never know. It's made me rethink that Britain won the Battle of Britain because Sir Hugh Dowding and, and lots of hardworking, sort of quiet, slightly introverted people came up with a, the world's first integrated air defence system in the late 1930s. And the German Luftwaffe had no idea what they were doing. And, and Britain had this extraordinary system where it was able to allocate its fighter resources incredibly efficiently, see the Germans coming across the channel with this radar, and then respond to those channels. Now, I'm not convinced that Neville Chamberlain wouldn't have won the Battle of Britain. Arguably, those great speeches, and I'm, I'm the greatest fan of any one of those speeches, and what extraordinary bits of rhetoric, oratory. 
There is data that there were fewer days lost to industrial strike action in uh, Britain's war industries in the summer of 1940. So, so perhaps there was a sort of practical effect of those speeches, certainly in terms of production and aircraft and things like that. But it just set me thinking, like, do we have the wrong paradigm? We're sitting at home waiting for someone to say some stirring words and for things to get better. Whereas this disease just doesn't respond to oratory. It, you know, it doesn't really matter how good, the, or, or does it? I mean, you tell me, do, do we think it actually... It does matter. And for example, that is the great crisis of the coming situation is it's the messaging. It's the telling everyone we're all in this together, which then in itself has helped to flatten this curve and save lives. So is this old fashioned politicking of giving speeches to convince people, is it central still to our modern way of governance? Or do we just want a committee of technocrats telling us what to do, who to hug, who to kiss and what pills to take? Yeah, I mean, I think I that know. obviously this is a, you know extremely... Um difficult question both about the past and about the the present you know we shouldn't underestimate the possibility or the likelihood that rhetoric and oratory can have an impact on individual morale and collective morale I suspect that actually different people responded in rather different ways to hearing Churchill's speeches and I think that some of what was important actually came afterwards a fact which he himself recognized because the the speech in the House of Commons earlier in May 1940, he actually, you know, there, were, there was no obviously audio recording of it in the House of Commons at the time, and it was recorded, I think, in 1949. So it became part of the story that was retrospectively about the war, and I, and I don't actually underestimate the the significance of that. I think though this is where there is a difference, despite the parallels with the state on the state side between political leadership in a pandemic and political leadership in a, a war. One of you can correct me if I'm wrong here, but it doesn't leap into my mind any example of us remembering a, a great leader from the past because they distinguished themselves during a pandemic. Pericles? Is it, really? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. <laughs> Boris I mean... would say Pericles, the, the plague, but... But he's he's known for his war speech, not his plague speech. Well, he's known for dying. He's known for dying. In that for plague, yeah. Sure yeah. Um, um, the, the funeral oration was not over the plague, though. It the funeral oration was not over the plague, no. It's not the way in which Thucydides constructs Pericles' leadership, I would say, primarily the plague. So I think that the idea that anybody is going to be able to to conform to that idea of inspirational leadership, which anyway may be mythical, that we, we have from wars during a pandemic is, is probably dubious. But I think in terms of the comparison that Johnson wants between himself and, and Churchill, you know, the, the massive difference is, is that Churchill had a, a clarity of purpose in relation to the situation that he had formed long before May 1940, and Johnson hasn't. And not only is that because this crisis has seemingly come out of nowhere, though we know that's not quite true in the way in which the crisis of May 1940 hadn't, but all Johnson's instincts are lined up against the kind of leadership that has been required in this crisis. That is why he struggled to make like clear decisions in the early weeks of it. I mean, the idea of presiding over an economic shutdown and locking people in their homes is just something that could never have occurred to Boris Johnson as part of being prime minister. I mean, it's just not, it's not what he was in politics in any remote form for. Now, you can say that that's true of, it, of anybody else. Nobody else goes into politics because they want to be a national leader during a pandemic. But Boris Johnson's 
sort of psychodrama, if you like, in relation to politics is so far removed from the situation. I think there was never any chance that he was going to be a particularly inspirational leader in these circumstances. It's weird to say it, but it's almost more like Lloyd George than it is like Churchill. I mean, Lloyd George didn't go into politics in order to become a wartime leader during a total war. He was, in some sense, the anti-war politician. Even more acutely, Woodrow Wilson. Woodrow Wilson stood for election to keep the United States out of the war. Um, But Johnson is not that kind of politician either, because both Lloyd George and Woodrow Wilson were, in their different ways, I think, profoundly pragmatic. And Johnson isn't. I'm going to say one thing about the the Cummings situation. So a, a difference to me, it seems, is though even though that that Churchill rhetoric, it's about sacrifice, it's about collective sacrifice. We're all in it together. Wars are deeply hierarchical events. They create the conditions of extreme forms of leadership, and diseases are kind of egalitarian events. Though, of course, depending on how rich you are, what sort of advantages you have, and this touches on the Cummings situation, you can. You can escape in different ways. The fact is, we're all in it together means something a bit different. It is about collective behavior and no one thinking that they're better than anyone else, whereas wars aren't quite like that. I mean, it's, so it's very hard to imagine a kind of coming star situation arising in under wartime conditions. That thought struck me as you were speaking. I don't know if it's true or not. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of criticism of aristocratic British families who sent their kids abroad or off to Kenya and North, North America and things like that. But no, I, I think given that it is sort of central, it's a central, I hate saying this, but a central war aim is to get people to stay at home. Therefore, if someone sort of hasn't done that manifestly, then it's it's pretty undermining. But I, I just, you know, I, I don't think I need to be inspired at the moment. And, you know, I think the true heroes, it's, you know, James Niven, the man who, was the chief health officer in Manchester during the Spanish influenza and kept those numbers significantly lower than they would have been in London at the same time. I just wonder if we we are sort of labouring under what, what, you know, we have this desire for a leader to come out and make a kind of barns, sort of Aaron Sorkin, Jed Bartlett, Winston Churchill, make a kind of barnstorming speech that sort of fixes things. You know, I always think about Ella Baker, the uh, civil rights leader in the US, who said a strong people don't need a strong leader. I mean, I'm very comfortable without a kind of, flailing Boris in an evening broadcast. I'd like to hear from scientists. I, I, I think our ideas of leadership arguably haven't changed as Helen started this conversation with. These posts have been created in our societies of, of actual scientists who actually have data and actually have knowledge about these things. We're still looking for a kind of Periclean oration in a world where now we have other sources to give us confidence and, and leadership and guidance. And presumably it's possible that what's going on here part of the reason that the the comings affair as no doubt it'll be known we don't know how it's going to end um is so dominant is that the pandemic itself has become so dominant and yet almost certainly the politics and the politics of leadership the questions for johnson are not just about the pandemic so we are all fixated on one thing and one form of government the, the kind of lockdown form of government and breaches of that seem incredibly egregious And it must be possible that in Johnson's mind, Brexit is still the central concern of his government and the indispensability of Dominic Cummings, which is pretty baffling to most people. How could you be so reliant on this man? Is because Johnson's worry is about failure there, not here. I mean, politics is still going on. And like you said, Dan, there were the great speeches, but there was the Westminster Whitehall battle, which was just as important in many ways, more important. There are still decisions to be taken. Johnson may struggle with certain forms of decision making. That's what Cummings is there for. Cummings is there to help him decide. And that's 
in his own mind, potentially the leadership on which his premiership will depend. Yeah, and also why are we so obsessed? We, we, we personalise these things. I've always felt that our obsession with Murdoch in the Blair years, with Peter Mandelson in the the uh, in the the, comic, the Johnson administration, with Dominic Cummings, I, I think we sort of want to personalise this because we want someone to be in charge. It's rather scary to think actually, even his enemies think in something sort of the world is safer if at least someone knows what the hell's going on. Uh, and the idea that Cummings is a sort of master political operator pulling all these strings, as Peter Mandelson was, they all eventually emerge as pull back the curtain and the Wizard of Oz is just a, a little man desperately trying to, to to stave off disaster the whole time. A little and man think, sitting behind a desk. I mean, he didn't look particularly like the master of the universe the other day. No, no. I mean, people were struck, like, who, when he spoke, it was kind of, it was that jolt of shock. Oh, his voice is quite um, unimpressive. Yeah, you know, what well, they were yeah, expecting. I think it's more disturbing for people to think that actually no one has agency than even that the wrong kind of people have agency. You know, we want the Coke, I mean, it's deep down, if, if, the, if the Coke brothers could flip a switch and reverse climate change, that makes us all feel better. We all hate them, but we think, well, at least the knowledge that actually it's just a runaway process and, no, and none of us little tiny humans are flailing around, none of us can really do anything about it, is deeply disturbing. And I do wonder if perhaps your point that we're all obsessed by this new cycle and personalising in the person of Cummings is about our desire for someone somewhere to be in charge. I think, though, there's also clearly, as you said, David, a profound tension that, that Johnson's got himself trapped between between what the, the circumstances of the pandemic look like they now require in relation to Cummings and what the problem of his government, the authority of his government and dealing with Brexit and negotiating the EU from his point of view require and one way you can look in terms of the politics behind the political judgment he has for the moment made is actually you know to prioritize the authority of his government as he sees it and Brexit over sacrificing Cummings um, to the politics of the pandemic. I have no basis for this apart from instinct but my feeling is that Johnson's ultimate nightmare is actually right at the crux of the next phase of the Brexit negotiations for people to come to him and say, Prime Minister, what do you want to do? And for him not to have Cummings there for that. Um, and this is the great weakness in his leadership. I no, think- it's existential for that's why I think it's existential for, for Johnson. For Johnson to sacrifice Cummings now would be a massive blow to his to his government. And that is why he doesn't want to do it. And it may be that by the time this podcast goes out, he will have sacrificed him. We don't know. That will be for next week. Well, there you go, guys. It's all about historical parallels. It's George III and, and Marquis of Butte all over again. <laughs> oh, it's another tantalising cliffhanger. <laughs> you can get all the episodes of History Hit wherever you get your podcasts. There have been some really interesting ones. Dan has talked to historians, but also epidemiologists about this disease and all of its implications. We'll put out our episode that we recorded with the historian Richard Evans talking about cholera and the parallels with now. You can find that in our show notes or on Twitter at tppodcast underscore. Our separate podcast, History of Ideas, has just come to the end of its first run. We'll be putting out a few more extra episodes there too over the summer. So if you want to hear any more of History of Ideas, do please subscribe and you will get everything. Helen and I will be back in our usual slot next week. Do please join us for that. My name's David Runciman, and we've been talking politics.
Today, we're talking with the historian, broadcaster and host of History Hit, Dan Snow, about whether the past really can tell us something about what we're going through. And if so, which bits of the past should we be looking at? Lovely. Thank you. That's <laughs> okay. a classic intro there. <laughs> <laughs> oh, don't make me. I'm going to start giggling. I don't normally giggle on this podcast. <clears throat> We've also got Helen Thompson with us. Hi, Helen. Hi, David. Hi, Dan. Hi, Helen. 